Hi everyone, this is Catherine, and before this episode starts, I wanted to mention really quickly, there's some crazy shit going on in Charlottesville right now. It's hashtag defend Seville, if you want to go follow that information. But here's the thing I've been working on. This podcast specifically is not about the news, and I feel like I need to be restraining myself on how much news gets put into this space. So what I'm going to do is right now give a starter pack for anarchist independent media. Make sure that everyone knows how to get the information that they need to get to follow this news. Especially uh, if you are new to the scene, understand that media is severely repressed in this area. So you have to be able to get news from better sources than what you're going to generally find, and they're hard to find. So here is my starter pack of how to keep up to date. One, it's goingdown.org. Two, submedia. Three, Idavox. Four, Rose City Antifa. And five, Great Lakes Antifa. So I suggest, if you don't follow them already, to go to those Twitter pages and Facebook pages and follow them. Again, it's goingdown.org, Submedia, Idavox, Rose City Antifa, and Great Lakes Antifa. That's going to keep you up to date and know that there are lots of people doing amazing work, especially lots of Antifas all over the place, doing fantastic reporting. So hopefully that will get you started into being able to access some of this better information. Also, real quick, I wanted to give a shout out to Daryl Lamont Jenkins at Idavox for publishing a story about an action by Rose City Antifa last week, a fundraiser. And that particular action was especially important to me. And I'm really grateful for him doing that because I know that there's always a lot going on. Um, there's always seems like there's more causes, there's more fundraising that needs to do, needs to be done. So I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, so here's the episode. All right. Again, go follow those things. It's super, super important that we all stay up to date, <clears throat> up to date on what's going on. Hello, and welcome to Friendly Anarchism. This is Catherine. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Joan Harron. Uh, I'm over here um, from the UK temporarily. I've a fellowship from the European Commission to do research about imagine activism. And what is that activism? So I coined this term imagine activism to, to signal the interrelationship or the intra-relationship of fictional culture production and activism. So I'm not saying that one causes the other or that one leads to the other. I'm interested in the way that fiction and the the way that the future is imagined or the way that better societies are imagined is entangled with activism in some ways. So that, say, Starhawk, for example, is one of my case studies. So Starhawk wrote a novel called The Fifth Sacred Thing that imagined the near future that's got a utopia and a dystopia at, at war with each other. And she wrote that coming out of the peace movement out of permaculture out of feminist spirituality but she also speaks to those communities in the novel so one of the things that I'm researching while I'm here is the the reasons why people backed a kickstarter to to try and have that film adapt sorry to have that novel adapted for the screen what did you find out 
So I'm, I'm still working on the research, but it's 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 been interesting. Um, I've had people at polar opposites. Um, so somebody backed the Kickstarter. She'd never actually read the novel The Fifth Sacred Thing, which really surprised me because the whole pitch was to to adapt this really beloved novel. But she just thought that the ideas in a kind of like a one-page synopsis on a web page were so cool that she wanted to back it. And then I had another interviewee who had read the novel roughly when it came out, when she was in her teens, um, and she's now a 30-something mum, and it's basically kind of shaped her whole life. She's she's worked in various kind of activisms um, and around kind of alternative ways of living since yeah since she was a teenager so so reading the novel kind of shaped her whole attitude to to ecology to politics etc so uh, and as I say I've got more interviews to do but I'm imagining that obviously that people are going to fall somewhere in between them mm-hmm. I mean she's I, I don't want to say she's extreme but she's kind of you know if I had imagined like the perfect backer for this project she would have been it you mm-hmm. know because she would be my fantasy subject in that she took the ideas of the novel to heart um, and has attempted to live them out in her her daily practice. Crowdfunding is is making science fiction really, really interesting at the moment because, you know, you're you're getting anthologies put together around kind of particular themes. So, you know, it might be solar punk or kind of alternative versions of steampunk, for Mm -hmm. example. So they get funded by the the community from so which like they emerge niche markets yeah that are like so excited about this very niche thing that they can finally yeah experience yeah i mean it's, and sometimes it produces excellent stuff and actually one of the presses that's really interesting in in feminist science fiction is a press called aqueduct press i think it's been going 20 years now but i used to be on a list serve with timmy duchamp who is the founder of the press and one of the reasons that she founded the press was because at that time she just couldn't get her own fiction published because it was too kind of complicated, too demanding. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of like the strap line of their publishing house is something like feminist science fiction for the demanding reader <laughs> or science fiction for the demanding feminist reader. So, mm-hmm. well, it is, it's still a small press, but they now have this like huge backlist and they publish... I think the pub, everything they publish, they publish in both paperback and in ebook form. And then they have this ongoing series of basically kind of chat books called conversation pieces. So they have like you kind of shorter essays or, or a novella or something. You know, I'm kind of really interested in the material relations of science fiction as well as the contents and the ideas. And then the small beer press, which is, you know, is a, a, a couple. Um, I think she's definitely a writer. I'm not sure if he is. I've definitely read lots of her fiction, Kelly Link. So kind of small presses and kind of one-off groups of sets of people doing anthologies mean that stuff doesn't have to be pitched to an audience of hundreds of thousands. Right. So you can get stuff that, that is is more nuanced, is more complicated, partly because of crowdfunding, but also just because of social media, you know, that you can build, writers can build a relationship with their, I'm not telling anything you don't know, but you know they can build a relationship with their audience, and their audience can have a, a clearer understanding of where they're coming from. That mm-hmm. that just makes the conversation extend beyond, you know, a single story or a single novel and the reading of it. 
there's all this kind of hinterland where people are discussing the ideas in the fiction, but also a larger project of expanding questions of social justice. So like there's, there's a huge kind of like an argument on Twitter going on at the moment about young adult fiction and diversity in young adult fiction and people getting upset that some fictions are critiqued even before they're published because the premise seems to exclude or be harmful to certain populations. Publishing um, at the moment is, is an area of, of lots of kind of activism by fans and readers as, as well as by, by some of the writers. So, so I think that's trying to separate out what is activism and, and you know, what is, what is the fiction and you know, where they intersect becomes much more complicated then. Mm. But I'm really fascinated by by crowdfunding in particular because the idea that there is a group of people who are so passionate about sets of ideas and also sets of producers who they trust to shape those ideas, mm-hmm. that they're investing in getting kind of like some form of hard copy, a book or or a film or something that they can read, view, consume themselves, but also share with other people. I think is really interesting and exciting. I feel like fiction writing is sort of devalued often in our culture, and or sort of novels or comics or uh, sci-fi also specifically is devalued and seen as sort of uh, unimportant or fringe. But it sounds like it, I mean it can be really powerful, really powerful tool for social change. Yeah, I think it is a really powerful tool. And I mean, it's just, it's hard for me to, to even understand that, that there are some people who still think like that, partly because of the, the you know, obviously the circles that I move in are people who, who take story very seriously um, and who take the, the kind of the power that, that the story generally, but science fiction in particular, has to, to, to shape the, the way we can think possibilities for the future. So, I mean, one of the communities that, that seems to me that's doing lots of really interesting work with science fiction at the moment is is kind of is the, the black community and people working in afrofuturism so I, I don't know if you noticed today um Ava DuVernay is adapting one of Octavia Butler's novels mm. for the screen so Very cool. so, I mean, so that, that was all over Twitter and Facebook today so that's really exciting so Octavia Butler who I mean she, she died about 10 years ago she wrote these novels called the Parable series, the Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents, and the first one of those was actually published in the same year as The Fifth Sacred Thing, which was 1993. And lots of people have been reading that since Trump got into power. One of the things that people were arguing, and this is one of the things that's interesting about science fiction, is they were arguing that she was prescient, that she imagined a leader of the US very like Trump, you know, kind of verging on fascism and... But actually, what she was writing about at the time, what Starhawk was also writing about at the time, was what was happening in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, the kind, the kind of problems that we're seeing now politically were, you know, they're not new. I mean, Trump is extreme, but, you know, Reagan was not. Yeah, he wasn't nice. <laughs> um, you know, so, so the kind of, you know, the, the, the war on drugs and the... Criminalization, extreme criminalization of the black community was something that was happening back then. So, so science fiction does this thing where it appears to be kind of extrapolating and looking into the future, but what it's also doing is it's it's kind of like diagnosing a history of the present. So I think that's for me is is one of the things that makes it so so valuable. And I think some people are interested in science fiction as just 
some readers of science fiction just like you know they read the next thing and then they read the next thing they're kind of they're interested in the thing that's being published at the moment and they always just want to read another thing but for me that it's the the novels that that people return to again and again like the fifth sacred thing or like the parable of the sower that are or or one of Marge Piercy's like women on the edge of time they keep speaking to people because of the kind of the the, the politics and the kind of the philosophical vision that's there Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I I find it very hard to to take it seriously when people devalue it. I mean, and I mean, making the link with Octavia Butler. Do you do you know the collection Octavia's Brood? Yes, I do. It's actually it's actually sold by AK Press. Yeah. So um, Octavia's Brood, I did get it, but I ended up giving it away as a as sort of a last minute gift. <laughs> so I, I I didn't read it, but I've heard a lot about it. Huge rave reviews. Yeah. Um, because it's it's not Octavia Butler's writing. It's a series of, it's a collection of other sci-fi written sort of in homage or from to her or not in homage. Well, no, like... actually. So so what's really interesting about it is they're kind of they're they're inspired by Octavia, but the short stories aren't necessarily kind of like written kind of in dialogue with her fiction or in homage. Kind of the two editors of the collection, um, Walida Emerisha and Adrian Marie Brown. Their argument is that that all social activism, all organising, is science fiction. The short stories are are written for the most part by social justice workers, mm-hmm. um, whether that be kind of professional or activist. And yeah, there's a piece in it by Mumaya Abu Jamal. Yeah, it's, it's a very kind of varied collection. But to me, one of the things that's really interesting is the way in which it was produced. So yeah, as you say, it was kind of it was it was published by AK Press, but it was partly funded through Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. And the the editors workshop the stories with the the authors, so it's a very kind of it was obviously a very kind of collaborative writing and publication process. So, kind of the use of crowdfunding in in cultural production, I think, is is another kind of activism that's really interesting. You know, that the people who think that there's a need for these stories to shape different futures so not only are they invested in writing the stories they're invested in kind of financially backing other people to produce the stories so that they will have a wider audience i haven't interviewed adrian and walida yet but i'm hoping to interview them about the the, the process of of putting the collection together because i think it was inspired and i don't know if it's been reprinted i think it's been reprinted because it, it's it's caused such a buzz you know um I, I see lots of people on the internet who are kind of who are using it to teach from, because mm. I think people are inspired not just by the content of the fiction but by the whole kind of concept of science fiction and social justice that kind of entwinement that they talk about. Yeah, which is exactly what you know what I was interested in when I came yeah. here to do my research. Well, anarchists love sci-fi. Yeah, we love sci-fi, <laughs> and I think that's exactly why because it's all about the ability to imagine the future being different than how mm. it is now and often in very yeah. extreme ways. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just simply can't or don't have any interest in doing that see that this moment is going to last forever. Yeah. You know, the connection between anarchism and sci-fi yeah. has always been one of uh, great love and amusement for yes. me. <laughs> like I'm reading, uh, you know, all about Hamburg and the G20 do you hear anything about that? No, no, tell me. Oh, okay, wow. So um, the G20 was just in Hamburg, uh-huh. and it's an incredible story about uh, an entire city rising up in resistance against the police state that was right. being created on purpose 
by uh-huh. the G20 summit, they right. brought in like 20,000 police from all over Europe. Oh, great. And they just were... I, I can't even. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I, I should read the article. Post the article because it will explain it better than me. But what I was getting at though is that in this incredibly in-depth article describing this intensive social struggle against this rising authoritarianism and police mm-hmm. state, the author compared police water cannons to the Balrog in <laughs> Lord of the Rings. And I read that. I was like, oh man, <laughs> Anakis, <Yes>. I love you. <laughs> But I mean, it's, and it was fair because that's how it's hard to conceptualize some mm-hmm. of these things sometimes. You know, if you yeah. hear water cannon and you don't understand what that means in context or you haven't ever experienced that mm. or, you know, have a sort of cultural knowledge from yeah. being in social justice, what that means. Yeah. Like having that imagery yeah. can help you understand. And they're saying like, they're saying the cops are everywhere like the orcs and then yeah. they wheel the water cannon forward and the orcs all scatter to get out of the way of the yeah. balrog and so like that's a very that's a very evocative imagery that they use to help explain this situation yeah you know and i don't know if it was necessarily to help explain the situation but also because it's just sort of how we think yeah and sort of like that was when you see that happening but i love that anarchists live in this kind of like i don't know almost mystic world or sci-fi world where you sort of look around and see things Mm -hmm. in a different light necessarily as people that spend our time designing and imagining different futures Mm -hmm. you know so I think the ability to do that I think having grown up with sci-fi from like Mm -hmm. my dad and that sort of thing maybe it's a I think it's possibly a learned trait and going like having sci-fi around when you're young or like having a lot of history to understand that yeah, things can change. Like things have been different in the past, and they can be different in the future. Yeah, you know, if that design brain is a teachable, yeah, thing. I don't. I, mean, th- I think that's interesting because I think it partly depends on the kind of science fiction. Because I mean, like Le Guin is an anarchist, Starhawk is an anarchist, Marge Piercy is an anarchist. I mean, and they would identify themselves as anarchists um, to some degree or another. I don't know that Octavia Butler necessarily identified herself as an anarchist but kind of you know for as far as she was concerned like the worst problem humanity had was hierarchy and then you know the kind of the, the will to to for, to power over so kind of you know so they're all writing kind of from an anarchist place but you know when I was a teenager I was reading Asimov and Asimov was all about kind of like you know kind of like designing future history it was kind of it was very much a kind, a kind of a control vision of the future and of society so um so yeah, I, I do. I, I take your point, but yeah, I think partly the content of the of the science fiction matters. You know, there there's you know there are kind of authoritarian control freaks who write science fiction as well, mm-hmm. um, and presumably authoritarian control freak lovers of science fiction also. So um, one of the feminist theorists, I guess you'd call her, that I work with quite a lot, is Donna Haraway. And she says it matters what thoughts you think thoughts with. It matters what which stories you kind of you think story with. And I think that that's important to me. I mean, you'll probably have guessed that pretty much it's feminist science fiction that I read. You know, th- those are the kind of fictions that, that I think with and that I want to think with because you know, for the most part, they're imagining futures that are attentive to kind of to questions of class, gender, sexuality, race. So they're switched on politically in ways that some science fictions aren't. So yeah, so not to kind of to cut across your point, but kind of like to nuance it some some way. No, absolutely, that's a really important point. Yeah. I think in some ways 
the right is actually better at creating stories that are easily digestible mm. and easily understood. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of our stories are very rich yeah. and very in-depth, yeah. but also not easily translatable yeah. to a wider public yeah. because there is so much uh, nuance mm. and uh, complexity in the stories that we write or the stories that we read mm-hmm. in that sort of social justice sci-fi. Yeah. While yeah. the right has this very easy narrative of mm-hmm. they are bad, hit them with a stick. Yeah. And that's really easy for people to understand. Yeah. You know? So I think that we, as humans, only understand stories. And I think there is actually a tendency on the left to sort of forget that mm-hmm. and to try and work from um, this very sort of objective, scientific mm-hmm. place instead of really appreciating and... Uh, respecting the power of stories mm-hmm. and and how they shape how we move through the world and yeah. the, the, the the fact that I think that we actually only have stories yeah like there's so much information in the world that all we have is the stories that we tell ourselves mm-hmm. so when the left sort of the uh, liberal movement starting way back in the enlightenment sort of said stories don't matter in some ways and you know, said stories don't matter there's only objective reality mm. i think we kind of lost part of the ability to hold on to these narratives that are so important to how we create our futures and that gives a gives this big gap for the right to move in with their very simple easily digestible narratives based in fear you know mm-hmm. and othering yeah i mean i think that is a real challenge because i mean for me one of the, the the things that I, I love about the fifth sacred thing is in the text you have a kind of like a dramatization of the the power of stories um so do you know the, the novel at all mm-hmm. so it's it's set it's set in 2048 it begins in 2048 um basically the kind of like the u.s has is no longer united and the, in the states have kind of fallen apart but you only really find out about Northern and Southern California. So you're kind of, you're imagining what's going on elsewhere. There's been some kind of breakdown of telecoms, etc. So that's all you've got. You've got kind of like this kind of small space. And San Francisco and the Bay Area are the kind of the relatively utopian space. They've, they've dug up their pavements to plant food. They've brought all the water that formerly went through pipes. They've brought all their irrigation above ground so that you can see streams and you can hear water. They don't have fossil fuel vehicles. They have they use kind of bicycles or they've got some kind of aerial gondolas. So they've reimagined reimagined kind of like the built environment um, mm-hmm. and their food production. But they've also kind of reimagined governance. So they have basically kind of large kind of participatory democratic meetings. But this all happened when they decided that they were were not going to be ruled by the stewards and the stewards are the people who are definitely ruling in southern california and possibly beyond it's not clear and they're this kind of evil alliance of the religious right racists and christians very dodgy christians so they've they've revolted against that and what happens at the beginning of the novel is is you there's a celebration of the 20th anniversary of the uprising where they decided that this wasn't going to happen and so what they have is they have a story that they tell each year about what happened. So as this story is being told, you have, you're kind of witnessing it through the point of view of kind of some of the characters in the novel and they're going, they're kind of you know, quibbling a bit and there's a kind of like a refrain, remember one action can change the world and somebody goes, yeah, one action, hundreds and hundreds of hours of meetings. <laughs> um, so, 
so so it's kind of so I what I really like about it is it's kind of it's it, it shows like kind of like the power of enabling mythology but it also shows that you have to hold those kind of like enabling stories in some kind of suspension you have to you know you have to be not cynical but skeptical so so I think for me that's one of the really interesting things about the book is that you know it shows how stories move people but it also shows that people are aware that kind of that that's going on and that it's important to stay knowing that that's going on and I think that's that's possibly kind of one of the the drawbacks for the left is is that kind of desire to be skeptical and critical it makes it very hard to tell you know even a nuanced story you're going yeah but yeah but yeah but and the yeah buts are important but you have to they have to be held in suspension in some moments to to have that thing that moves people and it's yeah it's a real tightrope I'm not quite sure how you pull it off except in kind of like you know specific actions so you know there's the center for story-based strategy in Oakland but they have they've kind of broken down the kind of the moments of the stories you know kind of so they think about using stories tactically and that seems really smart to me yeah that's fascinating that's really smart I mean stories are stories are motivating we tell ourselves stories throughout history I think that's a basic tactic of war of battle is to have clear stories that we tell ourselves and tell our troops and about what we're doing, you know, um, God and glory or whatever, you know what I mean? That those, mm. those are things. So what is our, what is our story in the sort of canvas strategy, which is the center for action? Um, shoot, what is it called? What does it stand for? <laughs> uh, center for action and non violent strategies I'll get it right yeah. anyway it's the it's the I talk about it a lot because it's where I sort of started my trip and looking into more specifically like how you deal with authoritarianism in social justice uh-huh. is the uh, Serbian revolution the Otpor activists and one of the things that they stress is the idea of having a vision of tomorrow right and then you have this vision of tomorrow and that's where you start mm-hmm. and that's where you stay and you mm-hmm. have to make sure that everybody in your group or even in your movement, mm-hmm. necessarily, I think it, it's a scalable thing, mm. has, is on the same page with this vision that you can keep referring back to that's written down or well-managed well or well-defined mm-hmm. so that you can continue to return to it mm. and keeps you focused and keeps you on track throughout all of the hardship that's going to follow. Right. You know? Well, that's interesting. I mean, so one of the critiques of Utopia is because you know I'm I'm interested in, in Utopian studies is that it's you know taken to an extreme. It's totalitarian. I mean, and, and so I'm kind of I'm curious as to to how they how capacious that vision is that they have that people are kind of going to referring back to. You know, kind of is it sets of principles or you know, kind of how how nailed down is this future that they're imagining? Because, you know, because I can see, you know, I can imagine there being problems there, you know, if you kind of, if you don't fully sign up to the whole vision, you know, are you then othered? You know, how do they work that? 
for, for spe- specifically for this is principles are different than your vision of tomorrow. Right. Your vision of tomorrow is the specific goal. So right. in their case, it was getting rid of Milosevic. So like that okay. was their vision. Like gotcha. specifically is like, right. we want a, tr- a better democracy without Milosevic at the head. Right. So that was their vision of tomorrow specifically. Okay. And so then everybody was on board with that. And so the idea of it being scalable is you can say, you know, like, it's to make sure that everybody is on the same page with your goal. So you don't go into an action being like, well, I want to make sure that all of the students have um, adequate books. Right. And this other person is like, well, I want to make sure that our PTA meetings are run better mm. or whatever. And they kind of come together in the collaboration of make the school better. But then there's no clear defining goal. And then that can sort of rip, rip things apart and keep stuff separate. So right. it's sort of just a, a focused specific goal but then when you're talking about a movement on a large scale uh-huh. you do end up with being like you know communism syndicalism anarchism so democratic socialism and all of these things so sort of what i do and what i think what a lot of people do is say like okay well for now we're here yeah and we need to get one step right here so like that's the goal now so if we can just like set aside the syndicalism you know, the sort of differences here for a minute and, like, concentrate on this one thing, Right. the future will work itself out. Right. And actually, one of the interesting things about anarchism specifically that I really appreciate is that it doesn't, on it on purpose, does not have a clearly defined right. future vision. Yeah. Because Lucy Parsons was talk, talks about this in a beautiful way, how... I wish I'd written this quote down to have right now, but you never know where you're going to go with these conversations. <laughs> yeah. Basically, what seems like a great idea now is be, going to become obsolete sure. in the future. And if yeah. you try and stick to something that's well-defined now to move forward, you're going to end up with like all of these mechanics just yeah. being totally bogging you down. Yeah. So anarchism is on purpose sort of like a little bit freeform in its yeah. future vision, but I think that itself can be really hard for people. That's not yeah. easy to describe if you're not in that headspace. Yeah. Like, so what are you working for? Like, all the time, anarchists are hell. Like, well, how does this work? Like, what is it? And it's like, well, it's not defined yet. It's like, well, then what are you doing? It's like, well, we have, like, so, you know, so it's like, yeah, so, like, I guess we're working from more of a space of principles instead mm-hmm. of if you're talking about, like, on a social justice direct action course where you have a specific goal, I guess, yeah, on a larger scale, we're working instead with a set of principles where you know, like, well, we do know that, you know, power is corruptive, mm. hierarchies are bad, Yeah, people can take care of themselves in these horizontal voluntary mm. associations, like, these things work, mm-hmm. and if we just work on changing the values of our society, then it, uh, society itself will, con- will kind of come together on its own out yeah. of this revolutionary value space. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, so that, I mean, yes, that all makes sense. I mean, I, I guess when you say that kind of the, the vision was a, was about kind of like a specific moment, yeah. that that's not quite as scary. That's what I thought you were talking about. Yeah, Adrian Marie Brown writes about emergent strategy. Um, she's one of the editors of Octavia's Brood. Mm. And she's done lots of organising in Detroit. She was mentored by Grace Lee Boggs. And she's recently published a book called Emergent Strategy, where she's talking about, I think, that kind of sort of being kind of nimble on your feet, really kind of, you know, you respond to kind of to what is necessary in in the moment, but, but working with, with some kind of key principles, which are just about kind of justice on a grand scale. 
I keep going back to Starhawk because she's my case study at the moment. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's interesting to me that she's written this imagined future, which I think some people who read the novel read it as kind of a blueprint. But it was written in the early 90s and it imagines a San Francisco happening that couldn't happen now. Mm. Because in the interim, the population has changed dramatically. The you know the property prices have gone through the roof. It's you know it's full of tech boys. Um, black community has been pushed further and further out of the city. Um, so she imagines very kind of multi-racial, mixed San Francisco. That it's hard to imagine getting there from here and now mm-hmm. in a way that it wasn't then. But I think. To me, what's what's interesting are the the mechanisms that she has. So she, you know, she she describes the the councils where you've got representatives from like from work groups or from from geographical areas. Kind of you know, people come as representatives and take turns at being representatives for all kinds of reasons. So she so she imagines a kind of governance that seems that seems to make sense, seems to kind of hear from all voices. She imagines that putting everybody's need for food and clean water at the heart of, of everything, that that is the most important thing. You know, Lots of them are kind of like non-violent by principle, but actually they decided that they couldn't afford arms and to feed people, so that they thought feeding people was more important. So the action of the novel is one thing but for for me it's it's the ideas that that she has in the novel of how a society might be put together that are really interesting mm-hmm. uh, the 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 economic unit is the calorie so oh, so so stuff is valued based on the actual labor that it takes to produce it or the stored labor of the past for example so things things are valued based on human effort and are not a kind of like a hierarchy of skills you know you know you're special because you've got a phd they do education differently education's kind of hands on so so for me it's the the vision of san francisco is just like idyllic to me you know just imagining them you know all those lovely painted victorian houses but with plants round about them and water in the street that's you know in the gondolas it's a lovely image but actually what's more interesting are to say are the forms of governance kind of putting food and water at the heart of everything the importance of pleasure the importance of respecting other people's rights to do sexuality religion whatever in the way that they want to do but i suppose <laughs> it was kind of it's, it's part of this thing for me What's valuable about the novel is not imagining that's what I want San Francisco to look like. It's thinking about these are the social technologies that we would need mm-hmm. to do things differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they are kind of, um, you know, they happen in the novel. So you, know, you, so you do have council meetings that go on interminably and, um, <laughs> and, and, and people dissenting and arguing um, it's interesting when other, when some people read the novel and they go, well, everybody's always happy and it's always sunny there. And it's like, well, no, it's not. That's not actually, you know, there's lots of conflict in it. The fact that it's always sunny is a problem because water's scarce. That's one of the things about stories. People need to actually be willing to read and hear or or accept a story. You know, some people can, you know, can just be closed off to, to that possibility. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what you do then. 
I feel like because people have a hard time imagining or how things can be different, mm. especially so drastically, mm. when things are going so wrong, mm. many people have a tendency to look to past stories. Yeah. You know, this whole sort of creepy, um, white-centered, nationalistic, mm. like, 1950s vision of a non-existent, or, like, 1800s vision mm. of a non-existent white utopia. Yeah. You know, where, where the man was the man, and the woman knew her place, and, like, yeah. everybody was religious, and, like, there was none of this ethnic minorities, people getting in the way, all these... You know, this is a story that's based in total fiction there this was not a thing that's ever existed but somehow it's become embedded in the idea that there was once this way of being mm. you know so it's it's a, it's a story that's easier for people to understand somehow because it's in the past so it's already happened therefore it's easy to have it happen again as opposed to trying to do something totally new moving forward so you just reminded me there's a story that i i've worked with in various places by william gibson called the gernsback continuum and it's slightly different to what you're saying because he, he, what he's write, what he writes about are past futures. So in this, this is a short story, and a guy as is he's a photographer. The the person I can't remember if he's the narrator or if he's the, just a point of view character. But anyway, and he's given this assignment to go around the country, kind of photographing, basically kind of like Art Deco buildings, buildings that were kind of like built aesthetically to to kind of evoke a future that people kind of wanted to happen. So he's going around the country photographing these buildings and he starts having visions of, like, huge, huge multi-lane highways and massive, massive aircraft and very shiny white people in shiny white kind of tunics. Um, and he... So he understands them to be semiotic ghosts. So what he's seeing are, like, ghosts of a future that was imagined sort of back then. So that thing that you're talking about as having happened in the past he in the novel sorry it's a short story he imagines that as being the kind of what people say in the the 30s were imagining for the future Mm -hmm. so so he's basically kind of pointing to the somewhat fascistic um, undertones of some of the early science fiction future imaginaries Um, and, and the story is about about being haunted by those imagined futures and what he has to do to kind of to dispel them. I sort of, yeah, I, I kind of hear what you're saying, but yeah, it, that's all, that was just, it was just resonating with, with that story. It's hard for me to think that, that those stories make sense to people because they just don't make sense to me. So... I, I think that they're comforting yeah. somehow to people. Yeah, I don't... I don't... I don't understand. Yeah, I don't. Un- I, d- I just don't understand it. I don't understand being comforted by those stories because, to to me, they're just so obviously. They they require you to kind of to hate otherness, don't they? You know, yeah. they, they they depend on, on, willfully, being blind to, to what's going on for other people in the world. Yeah. Um, and that just, doesn't make sense. Not that kind of science fiction is this amazing space necessarily, where like you know where everything is accounted for, but I mean for me that's kind of one of the interesting things about science fiction at the moment. You know, there's 
lots of really interesting stuff going on with, with kind of like indigenous futurisms as well as Afrofuturisms. So it's one of the spaces where sort of diversity is 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 really clear, and it you know and it's it's a place that gathers people, a, a kind of a space, a community. So so harking harking back to kind of one of the things that you were were saying earlier about about the Enlightenment and how part of that was was about kind of walling off the imagination and the imaginative and there are non there are traditions that aren't that particular male white western tradition that have continued to value story and the importance of story for being a way to learn and to transmit knowledge as well as to to shape community that (laughs) we um, in the west have been encouraged not to value can you go into the afrofuturism and indigenous Futurism that you're talking about? Um, can I really? I don't. I don't know that I feel particularly qualified to to talk at, at great length about it. But I'm just. I'm just. I'm. I'm aware that that there's really interesting work being done, not just in writing fiction, but in um, designing computer games, uh, in in making film, and you know, and a, and a community that supports each other, and that's a kind of a community of producers and. You know, consumers is a horrible word, but people who want to to read, view, uh, take part in the games. So, it's it's something that's an area that's that's growing in, in terms of like the, the number of, fictions, games, etc., films that you can see, and then, Afrofuturism. And I can't remember now who's the guy who's supposed to have coined the term, but kind of some people seem to th- think of it as specific cultural production so um so certain types of fiction or music or drama but other people seem to think of it more as as a a way of insisting that african-american people are part of the future and that they have a a right to define the futures Mm -hmm. so it's kind of it's used differently in, in in different spaces but i'm just i'm Conscious, there's just some people, some scholars who I've come across in various spaces in my work. So there's Alondra Nelson who does lots of work. She's a sociologist who does writes a lot about genetics, but she she also is in, involved with communities of black science fiction writers. So there's really interesting overlaps between forms of of scholarship and cultural production and activism that I don't know enough about. I'm just aware that there are interesting intersections that if I could spend a lot more time in my research, I would (laughs) want to explore. Yeah. I would like to talk more about dystopias a Mm. little bit and sort of why they exist and the importance of them. Right now, I'm thinking about The Handmaid's Tale Mm. has been really big. I'm thinking a lot about it. I just started watching it. And watching it at the same time, sort of right after I've been watching what's going on in Hamburg and sort of watching, being very aware of all these sorts of actions that people aren't really paying attention to Mm. and everyday anti-fascism that is currently happening. Yeah. That is very, very real right Mm -hmm. now and people are not aware of. Yeah. Or don't want to be aware of. You know, for instance, just this last Sunday, a bunch, uh, a number of activists got pretty badly beaten by fascists at the waterfront in Portland. Yeah. You know, so, which people sort of somehow did not Mm. make the media. I mean, people don't want to look at it, but then things like The Handmaid's Tale, I think these sort of dystopias are important to sort of ease 
people into the idea of mm. these things existing. You know, yeah. we see a lot of, mm, I guess, more liberal types looking at Handsmaid's Tale and, like, looking at our world right now and being, like, seeing those mm. those connections, those things. And I, I, when I'm watching Handmaid's Tale, I'm seeing people being introduced to the idea of militias in government mm-hmm. and being, even in America, the idea of having to fight with your own government, mm. which is something yeah, on that scale of repression, mm. which is something that I think is unfamiliar more to us in America. Mm. Yeah. You know, when I look at what's going on and what went down in Hamburg, mm. I feel like there is still some sort of cultural and institutional and social memory about what it means to have your government turn against you. Yeah. You know, so like having the entire city of Hamburg see the invasion of police mm. force and having basically the entire city say, no, mm. we're not going to put up with this and kind of come together to fight back a police force. It's something that is not mm, believable to see happening in America at this moment. Yeah. So, you know, so I guess that's where I'm going with that is this sort of dystopians try, dystopian futures trying to, in some ways, teaching people about something that we need to be taught about that's very uncomfortable, mm. you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm really ambivalent about dystopias. Um, you know, they're kind of... Whether they can really can function to, you know, kind of to switch people on, really. I, I'd love for that to be the case. It's, it's embarrassing because we don't have cable. I haven't seen The Handmaid's Tale. But, I mean, I, I know the, the book well from, from years back. And... This is it's another thing, like the Octavia Butler, people, you know, are going, oh, you know, it's like it's, you know, it, it's the it's the story for our time, da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, well, actually, it made complete sense when it was written as well. Um, actually, you know, since, in the time since it was published until now, it would be, like, much, much easier now to kind of take all women's money out of their bank accounts. You know, we were just starting when that book was published, I think. But, like, you know, now you can easily imagine all women's money, all their bank accounts being frozen. So kind of like, you know, so the the tech is probably more in line with what she imagines now. But, yeah, I don't know. So this is one of the the issues I'm having with my research as well. Starhawk's novel has, like, it has, like, kind of utopian and dystopian spaces in it. And and it's utopian in the sense that kind of it imagines ways to to work on making society better. You know, it's not perfect. You know, there's shortages and things. You know, it's not... Everybody doesn't have everything. But they have different attitudes to kind of, like, abundance and scarcity in the happier space. But you've got the, the more dystopian outside where, you know, people find it hard... They have to buy water, you know, and if they're if they're in, in L.A. and they're poor and they're black, the chances of them getting hold of much water are kind of very limited. Um, which is not a dystopian future, no, which is reality. Indeed. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think that's part of what I appreciate about that is, you know, she, she has some sense of how you can take action. And there's a bit of me that kind of, that worries about dystopias is just being almost like the cons- consoling fictions. It's like, well, it's not as bad as that, is it? Mm. Interesting. This might be just being ridiculously pessimistic, which I try not to be as a utopian. But <laughs> it's just I'm not that convinced that utopias are sorry dystopias. I just sometimes wonder that worry that they're kind of like a kind of a pornography of misery. You know, if they don't work like that, you know, if they work to make people imagine the possibility of like militias on U.S. soil, then great. But it's like, well, where's your imagination really? When Nazism was na- was going on in in mainland Germany, 
You know, we're very problematic anti-Semites and fascists in the US and the UK. And it's like, if you're not bright enough to have joined those dots, is dystopia really going to do it for you? I guess that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Like, maybe I'm too optimistic and that dystopias are actually a way of making these scary realities less real. Yeah, that's, that's, like, that's like my paranoid anxiety. And I don't, you know, and that's not... I don't imagine that's why Margaret Atwood wrote the novel that she wrote. It's not why Butler wrote the novel. You know, the claim about dystopia is, you know, you're, what you're writing about is that, well, if this goes on, then this is what's going to happen and we don't want that to happen. And it's also one of my, my qualms about the idea of having this novel that I really am invested in, uh, the ideas of the idea of that being made as a Hollywood production. Mm. You know, okay, lots of people would see it, but it would be a Hollywood production and it's commodified and etc. So I like The Handmaid's Tale. So, so for me, this is one of the interesting things, a moment where science fiction is occupying so much airspace you know on on tv in the cinema in publishing it would be great to think that what's going on is that it's being used or people are using it to think differently to have their their horizons broadened to imagine society otherwise you know and that's my great hope for it but when it's when it's being used to sell advertising or to sell cable subscriptions or, or whatever it's like well you know there's a bit of tension there um, it's one of the reasons I think I'm, I'm personally much more invested in print because the economies of scale, I mean, you, there's, there's still, books are still sold as commodities. Well, it feels to me like it's not quite as egregious yeah. as like film and TV yeah. because you've got, you know, the, the, the author has slightly more control over the product and there's a more potential to get the message out. Or, for example, if you're, if you're published by AK or PM, everything isn't published by a Murdoch-owned conglomerate. So there seems to be slightly more possibility there. Yeah, yeah, independent publishing is really important. Yeah. Because then the other problem, too, is in some ways you end up with people watching The Handmaid's Tale instead of actually out on the street fighting the rise of authoritarianism. Yeah, and... So you know, I don't know if... I mean, you can't really expect that from everybody, I guess, but... No, I can't, I and, and this is it, you know, so, that, so yeah, you say that, and then I think, yeah, well, life shouldn't be all austerity and... You know, and activism is important. Clearly, activism is important. So is pleasure. Yeah. You know, and yeah. um, and you know, and having shared stories. So it's you know, so I can't make up my mind. You know, it's 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 important that a series like Luke Cage is made, or or that an Octavia Butler novel is dramatized for a change instead of a another Star Trek or a another Star Wars. You know, different kinds of representation are important, but they're not the be all and end all. The balance, I'm not sure about. Yeah. It's- because we're talking about how our society devalues stories, but also we, people, humans, do need stories. We actually do have stories, but we don't maybe treat them in the same way. Devaluing of stories is actually like is a rhetorical strategy, I think, more than a you know more than something that's really happening. You know, hmm. you'll have people, TV pundits or somebody, you saying you know because the stories aren't important, all the while they're telling a story. Right. You know, um, most newspapers they're telling stories and quite often they're, they're much more based in entertainment actually than kind of in genuine information yeah, yeah. so to say that stories are devalued is kind of is slightly counterintuitive when you think about like the size of of, of media industries including mm-hmm. gaming industries you know they're, they're just like hugely profitable industries all these story-based industries 
but it's kind of... Our stories are presented as reality and not as stories. Well, yeah. So, so, the, so I mean, this is one of my... The things I'm kind of interested in, in in my academic work. So I've done quite a lot of publishing about the way in which science is represented. And, you know, and, and you'll have scientists saying, oh, these claims about what our breakthrough might do are all science fiction and then science fiction's bad. But they're making claims about what their science will do that they can't yet prove either. So, <laughs> so there's, you know, so there's very interesting boundary management going on about which stories are fact and which stories are fiction. That's, you know, again, is like another rhetorical strategy for, for claiming authority about, you know, whose stories matter. And, you know, and science fiction does does tend to be one of the places where that boundary management is kind of is most explicit because of the ways in which science as a an institution is is like is thought to be so I mean is important but is you know is spoken of as so important and partly is spoken of as important because it's not science fiction so there are all these claims going on around stories that don't necessarily kind of stack up in terms of like how people do use the stories in the world mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure when that gets you well it doesn't <laughs> well we, we're kind of in a mess yeah that's where uh, it gets you <laughs> well, I mean and, and I think that's part you know so, so all this you know stuff about <laughs> fake news cultural critics spent lots of years debunking certain kinds of stories and then it's now very hard to make claims about facts and truth and we are in this mess so yeah it, it's, it's a challenge. Well, the stories that we tell ourselves societally are so segregated. People mm. literally are living in different realities, pretty yeah. much, and depending yeah. on where you are geographically, yeah. where you are demographically. That so we're we're not even working from the same book no. at the moment. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> so yeah, this is one of the reasons I like Donna Donna Haraway's work so much. She talks about worlding. So she she uses science fiction lots in her kind of cultural criticism. And she takes, so, I mean, generally they call it world building in science fiction. That's what you have to do to kind of to make a science fiction stack up is is the complexity and the verisimilitude of like the world that you, you build, whether it's a future world or whether it's kind of like in a galaxy far, far away. And she kind of takes from that and she calls it worlding. So she's very interested in the alliances that we have to make and the people that we need to work with to make the worlds that we want to not necessarily see emerge. She's she's much more interested in what we want to preserve in the world. You know, so she, for example, kind of she's writing about you know extinctions and mm-hmm. questions of ecology. What are the things that we want to ensure continue to be available to us in the world? And who are the people that we need to work with to do that? So she's thinking of stories as a way to bind people together around mm-hmm. projects. Mm-hmm. So this is a woman who is, she's recently, she's an emerita now, but she worked for over 30 years um, at the University of California at Santa Cruz in um, kind of cultural studies and science studies. And the final chapter of this book is called The Camille Stories. And she writes like five generations of a woman in the near future in California and the ways in which she and the communities that she lives in take responsibility for the webs of relationships that they're in, which include, for example, the monarch butterfly, mm-hmm. which include other organisms, but also like the watershed or whatever. So so she's talking about part of her 
worlding is about kind of more than human stories, which I think is really, again, is really interesting. And I think it's one of the places as well that kind of science fiction is 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 also going is is to taking more account of yeah the more than human and that not just being cyborgs but taking account of other creatures that we share space with Mm -hmm. so i think that that use of of science fiction so slightly outside conventional science fiction publishing thinking of it as as ways to share enabling visions you know well this is you know we want to take care of the monarch for example this is a way that we might organize ourselves to do that in the future is kind of his intriguing way to think about story well it's been an hour (laughs) is there anything Anything else you want to mention while you have this airtime? But I mean, I take your point earlier about us living in different worlds. Um, it does mean that there are these kind of pockets of thinking otherwise and imagining otherwise. But you know, I suppose the hope is that at some point they all, you know, they will all mesh. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do my research project was because you know I kept talking to friends kind of outside the academy who just go well you know capitalism's awful but you know there can be no other way you know mm-hmm. we're doomed doomed I say and <laughs> and and nobody's doing anything I'm like well, yeah actually people are doing anything and I did mean to say this in response to something that you said earlier um when you were talking about what was going on in Hamburg um and people not knowing about it I mean and it's really I'm slightly addicted to Twitter I don't I don't tweet very much. I occasionally retweet, but I follow lots of people on Twitter, and and I start to think that everybody knows certain things, but they don't because you know they're not following the people that I follow. Right. So you know, so I was following lots of people who were at Standing Rock, um, and or I'd be, you know, who else would I be following? Um, I don't know who I'm following. But, but so, you know, so I was aware of what's going on in Portland, you know, and I was aware of, like, what was going on at Standing Rock. You know, all the things that aren't going to rep- rep- reported in the mass media. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, if you're following certain kind of communities, that stuff gets out. And I... It's like you really did have to be following anarchist press to know about this giant story in Hamburg, at least here in America. I don't yeah. know if it's more widely spread in media through Europe, I and mean, there's no way of me no- to know yeah. that, you know. So, yeah, it's no. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's it. It's, it's really hard at the moment to to know what you don't know, what's what's not yeah. reaching you. I bet it's always been the case. I mean, like you know, in in Britain, demonstrations are always underreported, always underreported. If they're reported at all, they downplay the numbers. Um, if there's any kind of like trouble, they report on that. You know, um, what was I? I was on a march. I can't even remember what it was about, and you know, and they did this, you know, the kettling thing, and you were all kind of like, yeah, and that was like, you know, a relatively new tactic, but that doesn't get reported. It just gets reported about, you know, all these naughty people that threw things and stuff got broken. But it just, I just find it really problematic the kind of the media that we we have at the moment that people understand to be kind of to to be gathering what is important that we know, but so much is being missed. And so even the, you know, liberal media yeah. is slowly, not even that slowly, moving further and further right. This yeah. sort of is normalizing. The Atlantic just put out this hit piece on anti-fascists, right. um, which was inc- badly researched, like mm. 
just a total hack job, but it was published by like a well-known writer who's yeah. written for this and that and the other and the Atlantic is a well-established magazine so it's like I'm not sure how this got through yeah. their editors and it's incredibly it's an, it's a dangerous piece mm. and um that's the sort of thing that's happening more yeah. regularly and so you know it's it's who <laughs> it's just sort of a bad situation media wise yeah you know yeah, it's just I have to keep reminding myself that yeah, that not everybody's following these people and is aware. No. So I mean, so then if the if you don't if there is no objective truth seemingly yeah. at the moment, then all we do have is stories. Yeah. You know, and so those stories are really important, and how we craft those stories and how we if we know how to craft stories or if we even know the fact that stories are being crafted. Yeah. So I think people don't. Just see what they're being told as objective, yeah. without the understanding that stories are actively crafted. Yeah, you know. I think that. I mean, to me, I think that's one of the interesting things about about science fiction. So, I tend to think of science fiction as being a way, kind of, to train you. To, to kind of to think critically mm-hmm. but actually I don't think you know again I don't think all science fiction does that um and and I haven't quite put my finger yet on what it is that so I'm as well as the imagine Act, imagine activism project I'm writing this book at the moment called genomic fictions which is looking at fiction that that deals with genetics and genomics and there's a a novel which I would claim for science fiction called Half-Life by Shelley Jackson and my argument is that this book teaches you to read critically because it's it, it's formally really interesting kind of she she has um there's like kind of facsimiles in it of of like um a patient's consent form and then she's got it's set in an imagined kind of like alternative present where fallout from nuclear testing program has caused lots of conjoined twins to be born Mm. so there's this kind of social movement of conjoined twins and they call themselves twofers but then there's also this underground surgery that you can get where you can have your twin removed so it's it's very kind of it's a very blackly humorous very dark humorous very satirical take but because it shows you this is my argument the way in which the story is pieced together you can rely on the narrator in any way. Hmm. Um, but also at the same time, what she's doing is, and the author of this is, she's, she's giving you kind of a history of the nuclear test program in the US and the fact of, you know, a fallout and the way in which that, the kind of, the whole kind of story of the testing program and the amount of fallout was kind of completely suppressed by the government. Mm-hmm. So this this story is actually kind of training you to read critically both fiction and non-fiction to think about the investments in particular stories. You know, mm-hmm. it, why is the government telling you this story? Yeah. What do they want you to know? What are, you know? What what knowledge is being suppressed? So to my way of thinking, the best fiction and the best science fiction is like that. It sensitizes you as a reader to the work that texts are doing the work that stories are doing and why and in the service of whom 
but I'm, yeah, I haven't quite, as I say, I haven't put my finger on how you make sure that those are the texts that people read. Because not yeah. all fiction does that work. Yeah. Um, but yes, in my humble opinion, the best fiction does that. So. Very humble. Not. <laughs> I should let you go home. This is awesome. This is a good convo. Good convo. <laughs> yeah, you must read Half Life. It's brilliant. I will. That sounds good. You just gave me a huge list of <laughs> a lot of homework. But you know what? That's the thing is sometimes I need to put down the um, anti-fascism for just yeah. a second and yeah. pick up something a little bit more yeah. imaginative. It's good for good for me. Thank you so much for being on the show. This was wonderful. My pleasure. All right, and I'll see you next week.